The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And today we are delighted to be joined by Mitch Tonks. Mitch is an award-winning restaurateur and chef, as well as running the Rockfish Restaurant Group in Devon and Dorset and the Seahorse in Dartmouth, he has written several seafood cookery books and regularly appears on television. His latest book, Rockfish, was published in May last year. Mitch, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you for having me. Mitch, as listeners know, we always start this podcast with the same question. What are your earliest memories of food? My earliest memories of food are with my grandmother. I used to live a couple of doors away with my mum and I'd always be popping down the road to see her. And I used to remember things like Christmas puddings being made in October and we would chuff a sixpence into it and there'd be bottles of Maccasin. It was always quite a joyful day in the house. And you grew up in Western Supermat. Was fish an important part of the family meal? It was. My grandmother was a, an incredible cook. And, and like many of the people in Western, she was an evacuee from, from London during the war and uh, settled there. And so she was very frugal with what, what she made and she, she knew her ingredients. And we used to have a fishmonger down on the corner called McFisheries. And so I would go down there with her. And, you know, I can still close my eyes and smell the kind of boiled crab smell in that fish shop. It wasn't at all fishy. It was just really wonderful. And there'd be piles of brown shrimps on this slab and fish of all kinds and piles of crab. And so I used to go home and peel brown shrimps for sandwiches and pick crab with her. And it was just a joy. Children can be fussy about eating, but particularly about, about fish and shellfish. Were you always open to trying that sort of thing, willing to go for it? Yeah, 100 percent. I think I was, you know, food was something in me. So, you know, whatever you put in front of me, I was going to eat. And I I think I realized from about, you know, I look back and I think from about sort of, you know, 10 years old, I was always in love with food. And I think when I left school and didn't go into food, I always thought that I could never be in food because I didn't train in it. And of course, it couldn't be the opposite. And what were mealtimes like in your house? Our mealtimes are great. I mean, uh, in those early days with Nan and my mum would come around and she'd have this square table with a leaf that would pull out, I remember. They were always long. I mean, people weren't drinking wine in those days, but people used to spend a lot more time at the table and uh, she used to drink woodpecker cider and then afterwards we'd all play a game of cards and uh, we'd play Newmarket, which is a great game in those days. So the, the meal was actually central to your entertainment. And then later in life with mum and dad, you know, mealtimes and particularly Sunday lunches were, were an occasion. Every Sunday in our house, there was a roast and a pub and lots of drinking and laughter. And did you learn to cook at all at that stage in your life? I don't think I learned to cook, but I certainly, that was where my compass was going on, you know, my love of food. And I think once you've experienced good eating, I think if you can cook and that skill is inside of you, then once you know what you're eating, you, you're able to create it. And I think that uh, certainly helped. And tell us about school food. That tends to be quite divisive. Were you a, a fan or not a fan? I loved school food. I think it was something really amazing. about My, my nan was a, a dinner lady. And so she would come around and serve you and clean up. But I can still remember, you know, the mash, the the stew, the bright green custard with the chocolate pudding, the fish cakes. I mean, fish was something we never had very often, but I used to really look forward to school meals. And when I look back thinking how cool it was that the community used to cook 
the food for the children. It was just like, an, it was an amazing setup, right? It was brilliant. And after you left school, what was your experience of food at that time in your life, in your early 20s? I was obsessed by restaurants and pubs. So I went into building, but my hobby was restaurants and pubs. And I remember, you know, buying my first cookbooks and cooking at home. And then I had this really surreal moment. I was living in Bath at the time and working in London. And I wasn't in food, but I, Henrietta Green had launched her book, The Food Lover's Guide to Britain. And I was just fascinated by all of these small producers that were doing great things. And I really wanted to do something. And, and in Bath where I lived, there was a cheese shop and a butcher, but there was no fishmonger. So I was driving home, listening to a Paul Weller track. And I think it was at the Swindon Junction. It was a Swindon Junction. I can't remember the number. And in a second, I decided that I would never go back to work and I would, I would just be a renegade and open this fishmonger shop. And it's exactly what I did. And I remember it just being the most liberating moment of my life, just thinking, that's it, decision done. I mean, it, kind of a lot of people were a bit cross about it, but <laughs> really cool. And how did, how did you approach that? I mean, obviously you knew a bit about fish from your childhood, but did you have to go and learn much more? Yeah, there was loads to learn. And uh, one of the things was I'd been to a lot of fishmonger shops, you know, out of just interest. And I was amazed that, you know, it was a guy in a white coat with a smelly shop, not selling very much. And I'd seen fish counters abroad where they were just, you know, groaning with such beautiful creatures and such amazing stuff. So I knew it could be done better. And in the book, there was an article on the Port Levin fishmongers run by a, a really lovely man called John Strike. And I got in touch with him and explained what I wanted to do. And he was very friendly and said, come down and work with me. And I really just walked into it really boldly and, you know, thought I knew everything about fish and counters that I'd seen. And it, there started my education in terms of fish yields, pricing. I mean, you know, I've seen some incredible fish come into the shop and sort of work my way around them with a knife, big 200 kilo tuna, 155 pound halibut, things that you don't see anymore. I remember selling wild salmon. I used to get so much wild salmon off of the River Severn, net court, lath court, line court, you know, really wonderful stuff when all the licenses were there. And, you know, we'd probably sell five or six cases on a Saturday. And then, you know, by early 2000, that was over. There was no more, no more wild salmon. It's very sad to see some of those things. And tell us about your transition from fishmongery to fish cookery. How did that come about? That was easy. I was broke and uh, <laughs> I had a space above the restaurant and I was taking fish home and I was, I was learning from Elizabeth David and Jane Grigson and I was cooking amazingly simple things, grilled red mullet and steamed cockles and all of the traditional things. And restaurants at that time weren't serving simple seafood that, you know, most restaurants were, you know, based on French cookery, which I certainly couldn't do because I had no training, but I thought well, I can do this. And so I opened a little cafe above the shop. It was 1998. And I remember a local restaurant telling me that it's never going to work opening a first floor restaurant above a smelly fish shop. And I thought, but that's the whole point, right? And, and we had about 30 covers and, you know, got some pictures painted on the wall. It was very naive. And I literally just threw myself in. And that's, that's how it happened. And it's, uh, it was really wonderful. And Mitch, what's, what's your advice to people who might be thinking of opening a restaurant? Is it, is it something you'd encourage them to do? Absolutely. I think that if you, you know, there is something about restaurants that it's as long as you're not doing it because you want to make lots of money, it definitely is a lifestyle and it's a life choice. But if you get lots of pleasure out of other people's happiness and you love to cook, then it's a really wonderful thing to do. But overall, my advice would be keep it small, be the host at the table and enjoy it and cook. It's, uh, it's fabulous. It must have been a real learning curve the first few months of that first restaurant. Oh, I could I, honestly, I, if I had the time, I could tell you story after story of disaster of you know health and safety lady coming in and you know I didn't even know what the health and safety was I had no idea that I had to register with health and safety people and then you know they come in six weeks later and try to close me down it was all the 
sense of negotiation, you know, printing menus. I mean, we, we had nobody in the restaurant for a long time. We just had three or four people. And then after a couple of years, we started to get some really, really good reviews and one best fish restaurant and a good food guide. And I remember by that point, I was so broke that I was, you know, didn't know whether I could continue from week to week. And we had this amazing review and it was a Monday and I was upstairs doing some paperwork and uh, the phone started ringing. I mean, the phone never rang, you know, it's just a few people that knew about it. And this lady said, I've just read this review in the paper about you. I'd like to book a table. And I said, great, two weeks time. And I booked her in two weeks time. I don't know what possessed me to say that. Anyway, everybody that called, I just gave them a date at some time in the future. And uh, word went around Bath that you couldn't get into this place anymore since the review. And so it just sort of really um, <laughs> filled up and buzzed up some interest. And, uh, you know, I think in the end, those are the type of tactics you do to get yourself going. And you're, you're known for cooking over an open fire in your restaurant. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I was in, um, you know, I was travelling a lot to Spain sort of about 15 years ago looking at fish markets and, you know, in the Basque country, they cook a lot over an open fire. And so I just thought it'd be wonderful to have this when we opened the Seahorse to sort of major on cooking over a fire. Now, of course, every chef cooks over fire. But, you know, 14 years ago when I called the fire officer in and said, look, I want to build a fire in the restaurant and cook over it, he was... He was not pleased and, uh, it, and in fact he wouldn't let us so we ended up buying an enclosed oven called a josper and i think we were one of the early adopters of this type of oven and actually it worked amazingly well for seafood and uh, we still we still have one and we cook over an open fire in there today you mentioned teaching yourself through reading elizabeth david and jane griggs and these these really classic cookery writers has your approach to fish cookery changed much over your career i mean you, you mentioned the open fire but are you still sort of keeping it simple or is it more complicated now? No, I mean, it's, I think every chef does it, you know, you suddenly start to see trends and do things and then you, you find your cooking following that. And every time in the past that that's ever happened to me, I've always come back to the fact that a great piece of fish cooked simply is probably the most skillful thing you can do. And actually one of the most enjoyable things to do. And even I, I travel an awful lot now and I head back to the Mediterranean countries and around and Italy and Spain and Portugal, where I think the fish cookery is some of the best in the world. And I really enjoy that deep understanding that fish chefs have with each different species. They understand the little qualities that a fish has that you can really sort of, you know, make a difference with. And, and that's what I do. And my son is a wonderful chef too. And he's, and all the guys that work me at the Seahorse are all brilliant guys. And they've learned the sort of ways with seafood, which is wonderful. And through your career, Mitch, have you built up good relationships with fishermen, I guess, around the UK and further abroad? Yeah, I have. I mean, you know, all around the world, actually, I made some TV shows in Australia and I've got some great friends out there. And I, you know, met a lot of great fishermen there that are still going, championing what they do, very, very specialist. And I live in Brixham, which is England's biggest fishing port. So when I moved there 15 years ago or more, probably 17 years ago, I was lucky to meet some of the most, still some of the best friends I have that, you know, are great fishermen. And um, then you meet mussel farmers, crab fishermen further afield, people in Scotland. And you realise it's such a well-connected, wonderful industry you know, I, I really love championing what they do because without what they do, you know, I, I don't have the raw material to be able to do my craft. I mean, what's your assessment of sort of general British taste for seafood? I mean, obviously we have a lot of seafood. Do you think we kind of really fully comprehend how, what sort of kind of rich bounty of food we have here? It's getting better. And I mean, you know, my mission has always been to try and spread the love of seafood really and uh, share the energy and thoughts that I have on it ever since I started. But I'm seeing more and more, and especially during the pandemic, which has been brilliant, the interest in seafood, especially British seafood, is, is more and more. And people are waking up to the fact that it's a luxury, it's expensive. 
But when you're lucky enough to eat a piece of turbot, a piece of sea breast, a freshly caught mackerel, some mussels, you know, there, there, is, there is a wonderful diversity in our seafood and, uh, and it's so good. So there's a lot more interesting in there. And further afield, does the approach to cooking seafood differ around the world or is, is there a consensus? I mean, you're, you're so well travelled and you've met so many producers. What, what's your take on that? My take is that uh, apart from Asia, which I love the way Asians cook seafood, they cook it in a totally different way that we do, you know, with fire and over, you know, dry cooking it and currying it and all sorts. I think that's really wonderful. But generally, when I think about the main countries as I mentioned earlier around the Mediterranean, simplicity is absolutely the key. And the joy of being in any fish restaurant is that, you know, somebody will come up to you and show you a fish that was caught this afternoon or something special about that time. You know, being in Portugal when it's sea urchin season, for example, is so wonderful. I love to go to fish restaurants around the world for those things. So March, you know, I'll be going to Venice shortly for the small crabs that they get around the lagoon and uh, to eat those crabs is just wonderful, but they can only be eaten there. Mitch, when you're at home, what do you tend to cook? Do you cook a lot of fish or do you cast your net wide? I cook a lot of Asian food because I love Asian food. And when I come to London, I, I indulge myself in, you know, simple Chinese and that sort of thing. So I tend to, you know, Japanese, Chinese, Indian curries. But seafood features incredibly highly on, on what I do. And I, I live 20 metres from the fish market. So I, I'm over there every morning because we're buying fish for the restaurants and, of course, sending people home as well. I want to ask you about British cooking of fish. Now, you ran a fish cookery school for quite a long time. And what I want to know is how we go about encouraging not just the eating of British fish, but the cooking of it in homes, because there's a lot of nervousness, even though we are an island nation, about how to cook fish and how to make the most of it. How do you, how do you approach that sort of hesitancy or, or nervousness that people have? It's really interesting because they were, they were about... I mean, it's a really key thing. I mean, people that came to the cookery school were... Well, that's why they were there. They were really nervous about it. And the two things that really put them off was one, they didn't know where to get good seafood. It was always difficult. And uh, secondly, they were, they were worried about smell and freshness. So I think there was this general nervousness that was it going to was it going to make the meal if they if they didn't eat it when it was absolutely this prime. So once we kind of got that out of the way, it was really surprising how much people picked up things really quickly. So I was showing them very simple techniques of how to pan fry, how to make a very simple sauce, how to use olive oils and fresh herbs and fresh tomatoes and things like that as dressings with seafood and you know leave all the stock making and all those things that might seem in people's minds a little bit complicated but also helping people to cook things in a bag so you know a layer of tin foil layer of parchment paper in a sort of you know small 300 mil square lay a piece of fish on it with any number of herbs and you know last minute any sort of you know it'd be cider or wine a bit of butter and you know seal it up and put it in the oven for 10 or 15 minutes and or less 10 minutes and it would be amazing how um people would sort of find that real success in that and they'd open it up and they'd eat a fresh piece of fish and think, oh, this is brilliant. And of course, once you've done that and you've given people a little bit of confidence, then, you know, there's any number of books that people would go off and, and, and get things sorted out. But the sourcing fish was the real, real challenge, I think, that people had. And Mitch, what for you is comfort food? Well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Comfort food can be lots of different things. I mean, I love pasta, love eggs, I like crab sticks with vinegar if I'm walking around the port on a sunny day. But yeah, curry, I think. I think, you know, if I want to go home and have, have something curry, it's just, just great. It just feels like, well, it's lovely. Do you have a specific curry that's your go-to? I make fish curry, so I, I really make them up. I've, I've only sort of read books, but I mean, I find it so easy to make up a paste and add various spices and herbs. And, you know, if I'm lucky to get fresh curry leaves in, in, in the Chinese supermarket I've been to, I definitely make curry. And then just a handful of fish in it. And wow, you've got something great. Or a pressure cooker with some, you know, I get my butcher to saw up um, some lamb shoulder on the bone. And then, you know, an hour or so in the pressure cooker and you've got something really magnificent. 
And do you have a sweet tooth at all, Mitch? I'm going to say no, but every time I get to the end of a meal, I'm I'm always thinking I should have something, and then I take one mouthful, and then and then have a bit more. But I don't generally like I don't crave biscuits or or anything like that. I'm much more savoury. Have you ever been interested in baking, or has it always been fish for you? Always been fish. You know, I cook meat as well, vegetables. During lockdown, I made a couple of really great loaves of sourdough, and I made hundreds of really bad sourdoughs. <laughs> And uh, no, no, baking is not really interested me at all, actually. I mean, I, I really admire people that do because, this, you know, when I see something that's perfectly made or one of the chefs at the Seahorse makes a really wonderful dessert, I really admire the kind of the skill that, in that discipline. And Mitch, we normally finish our podcast with a question about your desert island meal. What would your desert island meal be? Well, here goes. Uh, it'll be a couple of things. It would definitely involve white truffle because I just I can remember eating uh, uh, white truffle for the very first time and just just never forgetting just how amazing it was, probably with a fried egg, to be honest with you, just something incredibly simple. And then I think it would be a freedom air and a piled high with just about anything out of the sea that I could just sit there for hours and, you know, just enjoy the island and the seafood. And I think I think that would be it. Do you have pudding? Would I have pudding? No, I'd probably finish with a glass of Armagnac and then asleep. That sounds perfect. Falling back <laughs> on the warm sand with a belly full of shellfish and just feeling the sun <laughs> on my face wondering when I was ever going to get off. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds lovely. Mitch, thank you very much for joining Table Talk. Thank you for joining us on the Spectator's Food and Drink podcast. For more recipes, food history, stories and drinks, you can head to the Spectator website. <laughs> <laughs>